is that the allure of ARM chips in a data center? Because power in a data center is like 50% the cost of running a data center. Exactly. Well, so in engineering, you always run up against the three Ps, power, performance, and price. Those are the things that determine what you do in engineering. And those are all engaged when you're talking about ARM-based servers, right? Power, because data centers are power limited. Whatever they're getting today, as far as electricity is concerned, is all they're probably ever going to get. So the only thing you can do is have more efficient servers so that you can pack the racks with more server chips. Otherwise, you have to build another data center. Performance, not everything needs the full performance of an x86 architecture. So there are lots and lots of tasks where you might want to be able to use a lower power processor. But even there, uh, ARM's Neoverse uh, CPU cores have wonderful integer performance. So maybe you're not giving up anything for the particular uh, workload that you're talking about. And finally, price. Um, you know, if, if uh, you can get more ARM cores for a lower price, that makes plenty of sense for a certain class of servers. Welcome everybody to the Fine Flow Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McDermott. And today we have Steve Leapson with us. Uh, Steve is a well-known uh, engineer of, uh, in the foundation, but over the years as, uh, as an editor, an author, uh, and now a partner of Curious Research. So today we're gonna be talking a little bit um, kind of side topic to things that we've been talking about in the past, especially around AI ops. Uh, Steve is an expert in chip technology. And on our podcast in the past, we have talked about uh, AI embedded in chips and in silicon. And I think this is a super interesting conversation to kind of round out what's going on in the, in the AI space and how it ultimately relates to AI ops. So Steve, welcome to our podcast. You know, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure. Um, so, you know, so you're an expert in the chip space, right? And you've been writing for decades about this. And I mean, you, you're, uh, I'll post your, um, your LinkedIn profile in the show notes below and people can see, but you've been around for a long time. And uh, I'm actually more of a software guy, right? So, uh, and, but I also know that everything we do requires hardware, right? And you can see the, the elegance of software solutions that are tied with hardware, right? When they're coupled, tightly coupled. Uh, so uh, today we're gonna kind of geek out a little bit and learn from you on chip technology. So, so my first question to you is, you know, what have you seen as kind of one of the most innovative areas of chip design and chip technology in the last five years? So first of all, I wanna point out that I actually have both hardware and software products on the market that I designed way back when. So I, I live in both worlds. And you're right, uh, software does eventually need to run on hardware. So I think the AI revolution is certainly the most prominent thing that has changed both the hardware and the software world in the last decade. Uh, your readers are probably familiar with uh, AI frameworks like PyTorch or TensorFlow. 
Uh, and these are immensely important in running what is working with AI today for, as you call it, AI ops. That's a new term for me, but I like it. And they generate models or they, they operate on models and train models. And your reader, uh, your audience is used to working with these types of tools to generate models that do things from recognizing speech for call centers to recognizing uh, faces and ID badges for access control to uh, all sorts of things that we're turning over to AI. And the central thing that AI requires, AI software, is trillions and trillions of multiplications and additions. When you get right down to it, the tensor math that is the root or the core of all of this uh, AI software is performing a bunch of multiplications and additions. So certainly regular CPUs that you find in everyday servers can do this kind of multiplication and addition. And at the software level, it's usually floating point for maximum uh, accuracy. But they're not that fast at doing it. They can only do so many multiplications and additions per clock cycle. So the chip industry has spent the last decade plus in figuring out how to get more multiplications and additions done per clock cycle. And so you see, uh, for example, Intel and AMD adding instructions to their server processors so that they can do multiple additions and multiple multiplications per clock cycle just to get that performance up to get the number of AI ops up. About 12 or 15 years ago, NVIDIA recognized that GPUs, they're really good at doing multiplication and addition uh, because that's what they do for ray tracing and all the other things that they do for putting high-speed video graphics up on the screen. And so what you see is the development of CUDA, which is a set of extensions for C, C++ that allows you to accelerate AI ops using the massively parallel capabilities of a general purpose GPU to accelerate uh, these uh, AI operations. A lot of people recognize the fact that you cannot stick a 200 to 400 watt GPU in an edge device because these are typically battery operated and it would suck down the battery in about three seconds. So there's been a lot of focus for edge oriented devices to figure out how can we do these kind of operations? How can we run AI in the smaller, lower powered, even battery powered edge devices? And so there's been a huge amount of focus on that as well. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um... You know, I, and I know a little bit about, you know, GPUs and and because you see that in the crypto space, right, where they use the yes. GPUs a lot for processing mass amounts of calculations and mining crypto. Uh, so that makes sense. So, um, so you basically wrote an article uh, around chip technology and uh, you mentioned untethers AI new, I guess, speed. AI 240 chip, right? Um, yes. Codenamed, was it Bo Bocaria? Bo 
<laughs> I, I call it, yeah, Bocaria. It's a, it's Bocaria. a marketplace, marketplace in Barcelona. Okay, cool. Don't ask me why. <laughs> People just come up with names now, like half the time they're not even real words, but that's kind of cool. So uh, last year on our podcast, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about AI and had a lot of conversations about AI embedded chips uh, for network devices, IoT sensors. Um, so let's talk a little bit about these chips. So educate us on on how these like these companies that are coming out with very specific. And then how are these chips ultimately used by another provider? Because my guess is that these chips are embedded on a board with other stuff, right? And Absolutely. so manufacturers, you know, are, are taking chip technology from lots of different sources and, and embedding them onto their own circuit boards. So how, how is that working right now? And, and how important are these, these AI specific chips? So, uh, first of all, the chips are important because there is a demand in end products for AI. Uh, the models that get trained generally on servers and generally with the help of GPUs and generally the GPUs are from NVIDIA, uh, those models need to somehow run on these edge devices. So, for example, I just bought a robotic vacuum cleaner. And it's got some AI built in because it's got a LIDAR and it's got some uh, time of flight sensors on the front. And it uses these to both map the house and recognize when there are objects in the way. So it's doing some AI. It doesn't have to do it particularly fast because frankly, the vacuum cleaner doesn't really move all that fast. But many devices do need things that are fast. For example, if you've got a smart city and you're trying to do license plate recognition in real time, uh, you, you need to have that kind of information. So what Bocaria does and what uh, a lot of these chips do is they are designed to be accelerators that you add to a general purpose CPU that's generally always found in these edge devices. So, this goes back to the 1970s when we invented the term embedded systems. And what an embedded system is, is simply a system that's got a microprocessor in it. So before 1971, there were no microprocessor-based systems because there were no microprocessors. 1971 is the, is the year that Intel introduced the first microprocessor, the 4004. And by the end of the 70s, we had this term embedded systems and now we have an updated term called edge devices to represent the fact that everything is now connected either over Wi-Fi, over cellular communications or some way, all of these things are interconnected and learning from each other. And the problem with edge devices is they don't have a lot of power. They don't have the unlimited power of a data center. And so we had to find some way of being able to run these models, these AI models with lower power. And one of the ways that you do that is that you give up floating point math and you go to some sort of reduced precision mathematics. And it turns out you can do that fairly well if you know the tricks and get almost the same accuracy with reduced precision. So one of the tricks that's performed is that uh, chips like Bocaria don't do full-blown 32-bit or 64-bit floating point the way we do it in servers they use like 8-bit representations of floating point, which is amazing. 
and they get nearly the same or sometimes the same accuracy with the models. The other thing that these chip manufacturers have recognized is that in servers and GPUs, there are trillions and trillions of calculations that are taking place. And all of these calculations draw information, they draw data that's stored in the uh, SDRAM that's part of the server or part of the GPGPU. So there's a tremendous amount of data movement, trillions and trillions of pieces of data are moving through those systems per second. And that takes a lot of power. It takes power to fetch things from memory and to stick things back in memory. So what Bokaria and other edge type chips do is they actually embed their computing elements inside of a memory. And they call this at memory computing. So the computing elements are no longer communicating over some bus to memory. They are actually inside the memory array intimately connected with the memory cells so that there's very little data movement and that also reduces power. So it changes architectures significantly to do that. Uh, there's another approach that I think I should mention. And that are, is are we that, gonna see this technology kind of flow back into the data center where it could dramatically, because if you do have power and you can now embed these AI chips inside memory of a high-speed computer, one would think you could just accelerate AI models in the data center, or am I, am I off on that? No, actually, that's a perfect segue to exactly where I was going, because one type of chip that we haven't discussed at the moment is FPGAs. FPGAs can also be used to accelerate AI operations, and because FPGAs are scalable, so you can get a little FPGA that draws a little power, or you can get a really big FPGA that draws a lot of power, but is computationally better. And you can put the same AI processing architecture scaled up or scaled down into an FPGA. So you can put the scaled up version as an accelerator for your server in a data center. You can put the scaled down version in the edge device and you can be running the same software without having to do this numeric conversion. So that's another approach that some companies are indeed looking at. Wow, that's super interesting. Um, so how does, so if you're, if you're building, so let's say you have a, 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 you know, a thousand, which may be a low number edge devices that have these embedded AI chips in them. Yes. Um, and you want to update the models. How does that get pushed out? Is it, is it just standard kind of communication now? Like, so they're an IoT device that basically has a channel by which they communicate with some master server that updates the software on the chip? Or like, how does that work? Yes, that's exactly what happens. So these models, they're really just a long table of weights. So uh, there are various standard models that are used throughout the industry that have a series of transformative tensor operations. And each tensor is really a 2D, 3D vector consisting of weights that you multiply the data by before you pass that on to the next layer. And so to update a model after you've trained it, you essentially only have to send the weights and there aren't that many. 
So uh, this actually leads into a relatively new topic that I've recently become familiar with, which is called federated learning. And the example that I've heard, which I like a lot is, imagine that your edge device is a, ski, a CT scanner or an MRI scanner in a hospital. Mm -hmm. So it's using AI perhaps to identify specific types of tumors. Uh, and this is actually happening. I'm not making this up. There are devices out there that are rec recognizing tumors in CT and MRI scans, also in um, scans of, of your, uh, your eye to, to find tumors on your retina. And what's going on is they create a model and say, okay, this is a tumor, this is a tumor, this is not a tumor. And so the CT scanner can help the radiologist in saying, I think this looks like a tumor, you really should look at this. Now, you've got one trained model back at the data center that is being used to initialize all these devices before they go out the door and go to the hospitals. But now you've got thousands of these CT scanners in operation at hospitals that are seeing far more tumors than are used for training. And with the help of a radiologist, they're told, no, that one really isn't a tumor. Yes, that is a tumor. And they can adjust their weights in their model accordingly. And then they can report back to uh, Siemens or whichever company is making the scanner. Here's some new models that you should try retraining with because we think you'll get a better, more accurate model if you use them. And this is something called federated learning. So in an instance like this, where you've got federated learning, you're right, it is extremely important to be using essentially the same accelerator in the edge device as you're using in the uh, training model back at the data center. So is this somewhat similar, and I don't even know if this is true, that like CAPTCHA is a big AI training tool because we log on and we want to use something that says, oh, find the stop sign, so you click, click, click. Uh, someone told me that that data goes back and starts, you know, it helps in training AI models in recognizing street signs and bridges and motorcycles and bicycles and things like that is one, is that true? Do you know? And two, is that a similar thing? I don't know if that particular instance is true. I do know that there have been services out there, uh, years ago, maybe five, six years ago that were paying people to do handwriting recognition. Mm -hmm. you know, they would get some handwriting recognition images and they would farm them out to people. And then they would get back the information from those people as to what that really was. They would use that for training. So uh, I do know that, that the type of thing that you're talking about has been used for AI training. I don't know if CAPTCHA itself is being used to do that. Yeah. Interesting. I would think there, there are thousands and thousands of pictures of stoplights. So I wouldn't think that, that uh, and they're identified by the picture as that's a stoplight. So yeah. I'm not sure that, that CAPTCHA needs that kind of help. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I need the kind of help to just try and figure out what a bicycle <laughs> oh, is. Oh, yeah. I, 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 yeah, or <laughs> I'm like, is that a, like, where's the bicycle? I don't see any of them. Um, the, uh, so when we talk about, so this, this federated learning is super interesting, right? Because, um, I, I mean, we're kind of talking, you know, similar to, you know, Siri and things like that, right? Because they're, yes. they're bringing that data back from your edge device, which is your phone. 
and using that data to to make Siri better, right? So bringing it all in and and you become the trainer, even though you don't know it, right? And the radiologist yes. becomes a trainer, even though they don't know it. Um, Absolutely correct. And, and uh, I won't say her name because she's sitting right behind my computer, but the Amazon assistant also has been trained that way. She used to ask me, did I hear you correctly? Yeah. Uh, and so they were using me as a trainer for her. Yeah, exactly. So um, in our conversations prior to this podcast, you, uh, you brought up some other things we want to talk about. So I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about you know, data center architecture. And you brought up things like DPUs and IPUs and storage and computational storage. Uh, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. That seemed like a topic sure. that you were very interested in, in, in sharing with us. I am, because uh, the way I see it, uh, which happens to also be the way that uh, Intel sees it, is that the entire architecture of the data center is about to change significantly. Uh, you know, originally data centers, as they grew up, they were piles of uh, CPU boards in racks, uh, all doing everything. They were doing the networking, they were doing the computation, they were doing the mass storage because they had attached disk drives. And over the years, we've gone to a far more disaggregated model for good reason. So for example, we're all familiar now with storage servers that, that just aggregate a bunch of storage devices off somewhere uh, so that we're not dependent on having an individual disk drive in every single server. They're mm -hmm. just much easier to service when they're aggregated in a certain place. And it's also easy to envision that uh, we are probably getting to the point now where we've got GPU servers, where we have racks and racks of GPUs. And this is all made possible by the fact that the networking inside of data centers has been, the speed of that has been increasing tremendously over time. So that there's very little lag now using the networks to get to the storage servers or the GPU servers. Yeah. Yeah, even well, on even on base computers now, right? I mean, with Thunderbolt yeah. four, like what's that? Like eighty gig transport transport feet. I mean, yeah, things that high, no normal person too. uses, right? They wouldn't even that's notice. Right. But yeah. So it's easy, or, or maybe it's not so easy to envision that. Well, maybe we would do this with main memory as well. Now, this is this really makes you step back because DRAM or SDRAM has been closely tied to the CPU. And so thinking of having that memory relocated so it's not next to the CPU is jarring for most data center architects. You know, you just wouldn't do that. And yet there's this new specification called CXL, which is Compute Express Link, which is a coherent interface based on uh, PCIe. And these days, the latest one is based on PCIe 5 which posits that you will pool memory just the same way that you're pooling disk drives or GPUs in the future. So that you can think of the data center now as a composable collection of CPUs, GPUs, memory blocks, and storage with networking connecting all of these things. And that as you get a workload from a customer of the data center, you compose a system specifically for them. You say, I need this many CPUs, I need this much memory, I need this much storage, I need these, these GPUs, and I don't wanna forget about instances of FPGAs as well because you can now get those 
uh, as accelerators, general purpose accelerators. And something has to direct the composition. Something has to be the conductor, the orchestrator that assembles these systems on the fly. Uh, Intel calls these IPUs or infrastructure processing units. And NVIDIA calls them DPUs or data processing units, which I don't think is as descriptive, but it's probably the more popular term. And those DPUs and, and uh, IPUs, they're gonna become the masters of the data center. They're the ones that are gonna figure out when the data center powers up, how to compose these systems for customers. That's a huge change in the architecture of data centers that is taking place because we now have the ability to um, disaggregate all of these systems from the CPU. So that makes a lot of sense to me, right? Because if you it think does. about it, yeah. if you think about it, you got, okay, we went from like, yeah, I, I've been around a long time too, right? I mean, we went from, um, P, like, I mean, when I was in college, we didn't have PCs, right? <laughs> we had, I did all my coding on VT100s using Fortran. Um, but, you know, and, you know, I kind of grew up in the internet age, right? And one of my first clients when I started Windward was a ISP in the DC area. And they were just, they had racks and you just come in with your own computer and you stick it in there. Like we had a, we had a, a adult website. <laughs> it wasn't our client. It was a client of the data center who literally had their computer built out of wood. It was a piece, it was a wood box and they put it on a shelf and they had all the, the circuit board and they were building in this guy's garage, you know, and the funny thing is, you know, a year later they had massive sun systems. They were just exploding. So whatever you think about the, uh, the business model of that business, but, um, so what, then I we start. Let me interject real quick. Uh, yeah. So, so we in, in the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, we've got the original Google server, and it's just it's a pile of PC motherboards on a shelf, mm -hmm. literally, just like yeah. what you were saying. Yeah. It was. It, yeah. So, and then we went from dedicated servers, right? So then you just got buy a bunch of Sun systems, and the Sun systems got more and more powerful, and. You know, then we eventually now we're in this whole kind of cloud-based service, and the idea is like, okay, I'm going to run a number of applications on a particular server and dynamically allocate memory and CPU based on that application inside that server box or that 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 server. Why not just take all the memory and like we have terabytes of of SD RAM or whatever, maybe the next version of RAM is over in this rack and we have compute processing over here. And now when you build and when you say, I want a server, it's going to, I need a, I need a Linux based server with X amount of memory. It's, a, it's not even like physically allocated to you anymore. They just say, okay, here it is. And then it's built dynamically as you need it. Right. Because yes. If your server, if you say, I want 64 gigs of memory and your applications are only running eight, then you just got a complete waste of memory. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's kind of like the next, to me, it, it seems like the next iteration of massively scaling shareable infrastructure. Uh, I agree. And, and there's another important component that I would be remiss if I didn't mention, and that is security. So one of the really important 
tasks for the IPU is to make sure that every piece of communications that flows over the data center network is encrypted so that no one can eavesdrop anywhere in the system. And right now, a lot of CPUs have to do this encryption themselves because it's their job. But mm -hmm. with an IPU or a DPU doing the encryption, again, you just let the CPU do the, the work necessary to, to do whatever task the customer of the data center wants to do. And the IPU is handling the encryption automatically so you don't even have to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense to me. So I would assume that you know, you've got um, Intel working very closely with um, you know, Red Hat and Microsoft and things like that because these, these companies have, have got to look at how to re-architect their, their, their OSs to work with the IPU, right? Absolutely correct. Uh, if you're, if you're going to turn over the composition of your entire data center to a new piece of equipment, the software must agree to it or it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's super, that's, that's a cool thought. That's, so, um, I was going to ask you about Apple stuff, but you, uh, you told me before this, that you're not an Apple guy. So I have to apologize. Apple is just not <laughs> you in don't my have to, house. You don't have to apologize. I was just going to ask you about their M series chips and whether you sure. know anything about that and where they're going. I do know and, about their M series chips. Oh, so, so what do you think about their M series chips compared to, and like, like I just bought a, a new M2 MacBook air, which I absolutely love. It's like my favorite computer I've ever had in my life. Um, what what are your thoughts on like Apple where they're going with this and and is this going to show up in all their AR supposedly AR products and autonomous driving technology and things like that? Well, so um, Apple is kind of a unique company in that they've always gone their own way. Mm -hmm. So they started off I mean, the the original well the original Apple one and two use the MOS Technology 6502 chip. That's an 8-bit chip. But the Macintosh series started with the Motorola 68000 series, and then it went to PowerPC, and then it went to Intel. And now it's using the Apple M1 chip. And Apple can do that because they control both the hardware and the software. So if right. they decide to change hardware architectures, it's relatively easy for them to do it. And they decided it made sense for them to design their own CPUs. So they've gone off and they've designed these ARM-based CPUs like the M1 and the M2, and off they go. And I fully expect that they're gonna to continue to use their own chips because the more of their own chips they use, the lower the per part price of the chips. So that's gonna make plenty sense. Uh, but, but nobody else is gonna be buying M1 chips. Yeah, because well, they wouldn't sell them to anybody else because that's, that's their what I property. Yeah, exactly, that's what I meant. However, um, you are getting into an interesting area, which is, well, what about ARM in the data center? Right, The data center has been hugely dominated by the Intel x86 architecture, also the AMD x86 architectures. Mm -hmm. How is ARM doing there? And recently there have been many breakthroughs uh, with lots of introductions, you're finding that people want ARM-based chips in many servers. And so Oracle Cloud and the Microsoft Azure 
uh, are providing instances of ARM-based processors for their customers. Uh, and uh, NVIDIA just recently announced a uh, processor called Grace, which has almost 200 uh, ARM cores in it. Most of the, uh, our, most of the uh, data center uh, instances of ARM-based processors that you see right now are uh, supported by a chip from a company called Ampere Computing, which you may never have heard of. But they have ARM-based processor chips that have 128 cores in them. That's the most number of cores you can get commercially at the moment. Uh, so all of a sudden in the last year or so, we've seen some huge inroads of ARM into the data center, and that's gonna be interesting to watch. So I know one of the reasons why they want to control the chip is because of power, right? Yes. I mean, Apple, Apple has, um, you know, power is a huge thing, right? Battery life of their, because most of their products hardware products are all mobile, right? Uh, yes. Whether it's a laptop or, or uh, uh, iPhone or AirPods or whatever else is, right? Um, is, that the, is that the allure of ARM chips in a data center? Because power in a data center is like 50% the cost of running a data center. Exactly, well, so in engineering, you always run up against the three Ps, power, performance, and price. Those are the things that determine what you do in engineering. And those are all engaged when you're talking about ARM-based servers, right? Power, because data centers are power limited. Whatever they're getting today, as far as electricity is concerned, is all they're probably ever going to get. So the only thing you can do is have more efficient servers so that you can pack the racks with more server chips. Otherwise you have to build another data center. Performance. Not everything needs the full performance of an x86 architecture. So there are lots and lots of tasks where you might want to be able to use a lower power processor. But even there, uh, ARM's Neoverse uh, CPU cores have wonderful integer performance. So maybe you're not giving up anything for the particular uh, workload that you're talking about. And finally, price. Um, you know, if, if uh, you can get more ARM cores for a lower price, that makes plenty of sense for a certain class of servers. So again, this gets back to the composable systems. Maybe you wanna be able to compose deciding on whether you're gonna use x86 processors or ARM processors. That's sure. all part of the composition. Yeah, you can allocate tasks that, so if you've got this, this I don't know, you said there were like bifurcated architecture on the back end, you could have multiple types of processing and you can push lower yes. cost processing. And it, it, that creates some interesting pricing models, right? Because yes. uh, I wonder how Amazon would, would handle pricing of that. I mean, they seem to be pretty good. Well, at, we like, know already because yeah. they designed their own ARM chip. It's called Graviton. Mm -hmm. So you can get Graviton instances from AWS. Interesting. Did not know that. So, well, Steve, this has been awesome. I, uh, fascinating. I, um, like I said, I'm a software guy and uh, I don't know too much about this chip technology. Uh, and so this has been very enlightening to me and, and I, I appreciate you coming on board and, and, and educating us on, on all this stuff and uh, love to have you back on in the future to talk about the, the next generation and, and, and this whole like, architect, new data center architecture, like CXL is, 
fascinating. So I'll be reading up more on that. So thank you very much for coming on. That's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right. Take care. And we'll see everybody next week.